It's the Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast, featuring stories of royals, scandals, and true crime. Here are your hosts, Carrie and Larissa. Hey, 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 thanks for joining us. Real quick promise, please find us and follow us at Mistreague Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We have curated content on Pinterest and Flipboard. Check out our channels on TikTok and YouTube, and if you would be so kind, like that famous prince we all know, please show us some love and rate and review us. Positive vibes only, right? But first... Champagne. It's the summer of 2001, and Gary Condit's role in the Chandra Levy case is blocking out the sun. So the pressure is mounting on Congressman Condit. The parents turn up the heat on Gary Condit. The story was a congressman with an intern. It wasn't the story about this poor girl being missing and all these families being destroyed over this. Posters of the young intern are plastered from the Potomac to Capitol Hill. Her parents determined to keep their missing daughter in the public eye. Where is Obviously, I live in the D.C. area, but what's kind of ironic. What case are you speaking of, by the way? I'm talking about Chandra Levy and Gary Condit. Oh, oh, God. And I wonder how often this has come up just in general when there's a murder or someone missing. If you're going to cheat on your wife. Just be prepared that you will, if, if somebody dies in your life, you'll be like the first suspect if somebody goes missing in your life. Yes. Because at the end of the day, this politician had an affair with an intern, as you do apparently mm-hmm. in D.C. We had a close relationship. I liked her very much. May I ask you, was it a sexual relationship? Well, Connie, I've been married for 34 years and uh, I've not been a, a perfect man and I've made my share of mistakes. But um, out of respect... For my family and out of a specific request from the Levy family, uh, I think it's best that I not get into those details uh, about Chandra Levy. The said intern on the day she was supposed to leave, go home, is missing. Mm-hmm. He, uh, of course, comes under suspicion and he tried to run for a re-election in 2002. It basically killed his career. Every thought he had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. I wonder how mm-hmm. many innocent people have gone to jail because of cheating. They were the yeah. suspect. I don't know. It's just, I, it's just another reason not to cheat because. Yeah. Well, I don't remember the outcome. I thought that he actually did do it. Am I wrong? Very Condit? Yeah. He didn't do it. Oh, did they find the murder? They caught somebody. They found her. <gasps> oh, the remains lay in a remote section of Washington's largest park five miles from Chandra's apartment. Finally, they discover her body in Rock Creek Park. Huge park. Huge park. Twice as big as Central Park in New York City. The gruesome discovery made by a park regular. He was parked, I was walking my dog, and I came across a human skull. Found somebody, and this probably could have been prevented. So on May 1st, 2001, um, she was most likely killed. She was an intern at the Federal Bureau of Prisons in D.C., I called up and called up, and then she didn't answer. Bob Levy, an oncologist, and wife Susan are expecting their 24-year-old daughter back home in Modesto, California. She was shy. She really liked being at home. Yet her daughter was ambitious, dreaming of a career in law enforcement. You sound like you're very content with the program and everything. Oh, yeah. She'd even volunteered at her local police department before heading to the nation's capital. 
Then she got the internship at the Department of Prisons there. And I think she was interested in going to the FBI. After nine months in D.C., the internship is over. Chandra cancels her gym membership and emails her landlord that she's heading back to California. Then I called again, then on the weekend, she didn't answer. Five days pass with no word. Chandra's anxious parents call police, who head to her apartment and make some noteworthy discoveries. It appeared to the police she was packed up, ready to go home. FBI Special Agent Brad Garrett, now an ABC News consultant, worked the Levy case for years. Her driver's license, her credit cards. Her cell phone? And her cell phone were still in the apartment. That's baffling to me and others because the whole idea is when you're going to leave, you're at least going to take an ID. There were only two things missing, her keys and a ring. She had been presumed murdered when her body was found in 2002. So she disappeared in May 2001. Her body was found a year later in Rock Creek Park, but it was just Mm -hmm. skeletal. And at that point, I don't even think they even revealed it because you didn't even know she was found because they had focused so much on Gary Condon rather than Mm -hmm. actually her and their relationship. And they became very blown up because of miscommunication. The Metropolitan Police Department of D.C., they had failed to really Mm -hmm. properly conduct the search on the Rock Creek Park, which is supposedly like the Mm -hmm. last area that she was in who's running there. (sighs) Oh, wow. The body was basically left there to decompose for a year. For detectives, the discovery brings relief, but also embarrassment. This is something that uh, we all have to live with. There may have been DNA evidence that all that was lost because of the fact that we were unable to locate her remains during the time that we were searching the park. The remains found 79 yards off a dirt path down a sharply steep embankment. Police had searched 100 yards off all paved roads. Had they searched 100 yards off all foot trails, too, they may have found Chandra's body, DNA intact, months earlier. Some people see that as evidence of ineptitude on the part of the police. Is that fair? Everybody's entitled to their opinion. Critics say it wasn't to be the only police blunder. Days after Levy's disappearance, an untrained officer tried going through her computer and accidentally corrupted the data, which would have shown Levy had researched Rock Creek Park. And on top of that, another oversight at her apartment building. What about the surveillance camera of her building? So many times people look to see who came and went in a building. Things like surveillance cameras, unless you go and initially grab them or tell the management to hold them, they erase or disappear. And unfortunately, that's what happened in this case. Mm-hmm. And then guess what else they did? Yeah. While well, all this was going on with Gary Condon, they had also been mm-hmm. informed, but they dismissed it. And I'm going to get, I'm going to probably murder this name. Why did I pick up the stories today with all the hard names? Igmar <laughs> Guandique, G-U-A-N-D-I-Q-E. Yeah, that's good. He had been arrested in the same park for attacking women and he had, also confessed to attacking Levy. The MPD, it just totally disregarded, even though he had a history of attacking women and just kept focusing on the affair with... So he was never a suspect? He had been caught attacking other women in this park. They kept focusing on the congressman, Gary Condon, who was a... Mm -hmm. His alibi literally was one that they couldn't even attack. He was in meetings with the vice president. When you're in with the vice president or the president, there's logs, there's security, there's yeah, like there's no doubt. Like you can't, it's not like Mission Impossible. You can't fake it, yeah. No, you can't. You can't. 
he was never actually named as a suspect by police and he was eventually cleared, but by then the damage is already done. But the press, the press had named him as a suspect a million times. Exactly. And even still, it's not like they were even pursuing the other dude that was actually had the history of, of attacking. And then in 2008, the Washington Post was printing investigative reports. That's when finally the MPD followed up and obtained a warrant. By coincidence, I was walking out of my apartment and I saw a Washington Post story about someone who committed a couple of attacks on women in Rock Creek Park. In 2001? 2001. His name was Ingmar Gwandike. Ingmar Gwandike was a 19-year-old illegal immigrant who had come to the U.S. from El Salvador a year earlier. Generally, disappeared May 1st. On May 14th, he attacked a jogger by the name of Hallie Schilling. And then on July 1st, he uh, attacked another jogger, Christy Wiegand. This, to me, was at least quite suspicious. These were assaults that were both unsuccessful because the victims were fit and were able to fend him off. He was arrested, is that correct? Yes, he was ultimately charged with robbery. But one of the victims said to the court, there's no way in the world this was a robbery. This was a predator hunting me. And the judge didn't appear to buy that these were robberies either because she gave him a pretty harsh sentence of 10 years for both those crimes. And it turns out Gwandiki was still in prison when bodies found in Rock Creek Park. Police made a connection and decided to talk to Gwandike about the Levy case. They polygraphed him, but Gwendiki's primary language is Spanish. They had not used a Spanish polygrapher. He passed the polygraph? Yes. But even if you pass a polygraph with flying colors, the research shows that there's an error rate associated with that. And for all the people that the police dismiss because they passed the polygraph, they're letting some get through that are guilty. The police were dismissing him in terms of a viable suspect. But it stuck in my mind because I thought, given the dates and the locations, maybe we should look at this a little more thoroughly. What was the information you had then? Well, I obtained data from the Parks Police going back 18 months at least, and um, this isn't something that occurred very often in the park. Can you list the similarities between the two victims and Chandra Levy? Well, we have two such attacks where there was a female jogger who in both cases were wearing earphones, and it appeared the offender tried to pull the victims off of the path. So the first thing we did was we looked at what we call the mycogeography, literally the the immediate surrounding area. And they appeared to be similar to the same mycogeography of where Chandra Levy was most likely attacked. I looked at them and I thought, A, very rare crimes. B, we're looking at crimes happening within a very tight time frame happening in the same area. So there was extremely high probability that these crimes were connected. The FBI agent, he goes back and he pulls the reports. It turned out that in the first attack, the victim saw her assailant. She saw Guadiki in the parking lot down by the Pierce Mill. Wow. The Pierce Mill parking lot is the main entry point for the area of the park where Guadiki attacked his two robbery victims. And it's also the nearest entry point to the trail where investigators recovered Chandra's remains. We call this a fishing hole, a point where he's going to find victims. An offender has to have certain characteristics or specifics for a crime. In this case, he wanted a single female by herself and maybe with a Walkman because that made it easier for him to sneak up on them and commit the attack without being hurt. So 
how are you going to best find that? Well, wandering aimlessly through the park trails, or do you go to a funnel point, a fishing hole where everyone's parking? He can take a look and say, that's the one I want to follow. Chandra lived just to the southwest of DuPont Circle. If you're going to enter the park and you're coming from the south, you're going to go through this particular area. So this is almost certainly the point that she would have entered the park at. So she would have certainly walked through Guan DK's fishing hole. Yes. And then on March 3rd of 2009, he got arrested, Igmar, that he had attacked her and tied her up in a remote area of the park and left her to die of dehydration or exposure. Oh. He was eventually convicted. So they must have had evidence maybe because he had been, maybe because of the method of what he used with his other two victims. Mm-hmm. Did he confess though in the end or no? Well, in the beginning, he had confessed to attacking her. However, so he gets in 2011, he gets 60 years in prison and he ends up getting a new trial in 2015. What? So 2016, prosecutors announced that they would not proceed to try him again. They were just going to seek to have him deported. What? Yep. And in March of 2017, he lost his bid to remain in the U.S., So he was deported back to El Salvador in 2017. So to this day, her murder is considered unsolved. Tonight, this sensational Washington murder case is suddenly wide open again. Who killed Chandra Levy, the 24-year-old Washington intern? Apparently not Ingemar Guandique, an undocumented immigrant from El Salvador who was convicted based on a jailhouse confession That conviction later set aside, a retrial scheduled this fall. But today, the prosecutors moved to drop all charges due to recent unforeseen developments that were investigated over the past week. Levy's disappearance and murder in D.C.'s Rock Creek Park in the summer of 2001 was huge news, ending the career of a powerful California congressman, Gary Condit. Did you kill Chandra Levy? I did not. But in May, Guandique's lawyers asked to present bombshell new allegations in the retrial that they say could implicate Condit. They claimed the congressman may have killed Levy during a rough sex act gone wrong. Police ruled Condit out as a suspect years ago, and his lawyers have called those new allegations outrageous. No comment from them tonight or from the Levy family, and the prosecutors won't elaborate on what threw their case in jeopardy. David? He did not do... How many years did he actually do? Well, he got, he was, he committed those attacks in 20, in 2001, 2002. And when they went for him in uh, 2010 or 20, 2009, he was still in prison. So he did like eight years, but I was but, surprised that he, he wasn't going to be already deported after he got out from that. But the thing is, is the others were just attacks or they were also murders because this they was were a attacks. murder. So why didn't, I don't understand why they're just like, oh, let's just deport him. He's a murderer. Let's not, I don't, I don't get it. Why did they not yeah. put him in well, jail? Maybe they thought their case, their case was flimsy. So they're like, let's just get him deported. It's not worth it. Like he's I not going to come back. Yeah. So the park where she was located at, if you're going um, into D.C., you cross over a bridge, right? And you. Okay. So wait, so, what's NPD? What does that stand uh, for? Metropolitan Police. Oh, Department. NPD. Okay, I thought you said yeah. N. So if you're crossing from Virginia into DC, and you go towards 
the left, I know this sounds really bad directions, Mm -hmm. but like, if you go straight ahead, you're basically going towards the white house. But if you take a left Mm -hmm. and uh, there's Georgetown Mm -hmm. and as you wind through this road now, DC now, I wouldn't feel as safe being Mm -hmm. in DC because we've had a really uh, explosion during COVID of some drugs and some homeless populations Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. some violence. I'm not saying that all homeless populations Mm -hmm. are are dangerous. I'm saying that a lot of them have untreated mental health issues. And then we've have drugs on top of that with other segments of the population. And we've had a lot of gun violence and all that. Mm -hmm. But during this time period, when I first moved here in 2013, I had walked around a bunch of times by myself at night. Wow. This particular area, I actually ran at night. There's a girl. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if, so there's Rock Creek Parkway, we have it right. And it's a very wooded area mm-hmm. and it's a very beautiful, mm-hmm. totally didn't realize she was found there because it was never really documented that really? she was found there. I, to this, up until I watched a special about her, I thought she was just still missing. You probably didn't even know there were attacks in that area, right? No, I didn't. I didn't. All the stuff that Gary Condon did with all his career is now overshadowed by her. Mm -hmm. And he was actually from Oklahoma and his dad was a a Baptist minister, as you do, as you have. Yeah. And he actually worked as a roustabout in Oklahoma's oil fields, which reminds me of an Elvis Presley movie. I think he was in a movie called Roustabout. roustabout. Is that like a menial labor? Uh, Roustabout is a, um, has like non-specific skills. They just are like very broad based Mm -hmm. and he married his high school sweetheart. But during this time of the whole Chandra Levy thing, it came out that he had provided the wrong birth date for his marriage license. Why? Because under the age of 21 in Oklahoma at the time, you had to have your parents permission. And he wasn't 21. He lied about it. Oh, and his parents, his dad moved from his Baptist church to Modesto, mm-hmm. California. That's how he got his attachment to California and why he came from. And he just worked at a, like a variety of odd jobs. He made munitions during the Vietnam war. He even painted the Montgomery ward department store. You remember Montgomery yes. ward? Yes. He, uh, he was on the city council in Circe's California. Does that, am I saying I that right? I don't know where that is. He became the youngest mayor in the city's history at the age of 25. Yeah. So then he did like the board of supervisors. He went to the California state assembly, working his way up Mm -hmm. there through all these political positions. And he went to the U S representatives. He was a senior member on the house intelligence committee in the months and years prior to September 11th, which we had talked about. Yeah. And he was somewhat more conservative than the other Mm -hmm. Democrats from California. So I guess they called him a blue dog Democrat. Mm-hmm. Like he would vote against President Clinton mm-hmm. more than other party members. You know what I'm always interested in too when these mm-hmm. political scandals come out? I wonder sometimes, do some people get it worse than others because they don't forget, well, I was Bill, I was for Bill Clinton and you kept voting against him. So now yeah. it's your turn to go down. Like, I wonder sometimes some of this stuff is more, not personal in the fact that they did something, but just in how much attention they get or what kind of spin. Yeah, no, it does. He opposed NAFTA. You probably remember NAFTA, yes, right? Sorry. Their trade agreement, right? He was against the Iraq war and intervention in Kosovo. Mm-hmm. Oh, he was against intervention in Kosovo. 
And in the aftermath, he was a persistent force in compelling the prosecution. And you would know this name better than me. Slob, Slobodin Milosevic. Slob. He was against what? He was a persistent force in compelling the prosecution. Oh, prosecute. He wanted to be prosecuted. Yes, which he definitely, that was one evil mother. So you have to give us insight. Well, uh, I went over and did a documentary at the end of the war in Croatia, beginning of the war in Bosnia. So I went to the front lines and I did a whole documentary on that and toured college campuses, uh, you know, telling of my experience. And he was systematically ethnic cleansing. Slobodan Milosevic wanted a pure Serbia. He wanted only Serbs in all of Yugoslavia, right? And um, he would do it through atrocities. He would do it like the, the raping of Muslim women, any possible way they could do it, they would do it. It was not only one of the bloodiest wars, but it was one of the most heinous crimes. I walked in a room with medical records, like the size of my office, that was not not the total deaths. It was the total atrocities. And it had pictures with each one. And I'm telling you, it was just the most like grilling people, putting a pole through the entire body of a person, shoving it in the rear, cutting off the genitals and skewering that it was horrific, horrific. So that's my piece about Slobodan. The Srebrenica genocide stands as one of the worst episodes of ethnic cleansing in Europe after the Second World War. Over five days, 8,000 unarmed Bosnian Muslim men and boys were massacred by the Bosnian Serb military forces, while thousands of women were raped. But the story of the mass murders and persecution of Bosnian Muslims does not begin here. After the breakup of Yugoslavia, military conflict quickly erupted, first in Slovenia and Croatia, and finally Bosnia. And while there were losses on all fronts, Bosnian Muslims seemed to pay the highest price. Only a month after the Bosnian Declaration of Independence in March 1992, a Serbia-based paramilitary group attacked the city of Bjelina, slaughtering between 48 and 78 non-Serb civilians in a single day. This was the beginning of what would become four years of killing, persecution, and rape. Soon after, other towns along the Serbian border started to share the same fate. Between May and August 1992, in the city of Prijedor, over 3,100 non-Serb civilians were massacred, the majority of them Muslims. When the massacres began in other cities on the border with Serbia, it was clear that the aim was to ethnically cleanse the region from the Muslim population. In the city of Visegrad, between April and August of the same year, another 3,000 Bosnian Muslims were killed, 70 of them locked up and burned alive in a local house. Concentration camps began to appear. A hotel near the city was used as a brothel camp, where women and girls as young as seven were continuously raped, some for over eight months. By the end of 1992, there were close to another 3,000 victims in the cities of Zvornik, Vlasenica, and Tuzla. The massacres that happened in the city of Foča, with 2,074 Muslim victims, paved the way to what was to eventually take place in Srebrenica in 1995, 
the UN safe zone of Srebrenica, where over 8,300 people were murdered, was the last city of eastern Bosnia from which the Muslim population was purged. Along with the Markala massacres in Sarajevo, they became the two main reasons that the international forces stepped in and began the peace process. Uh, they're, they're still looking for areas of mass graves there. Yeah, and I think they'll find them too. And this is what's scary is I think the Ukraine, they're going to be finding a lot of mass graves. And we don't even so know the extent of what's going on there. I'm not sure if it's as detailed as far as atrocities. I know that the war in Bosnia and Croatia and the former Yugoslavia was a, a lot more atrocity filled because it was like, this vengeance they had this not even vengeance they just had this i don't know but uh i don't know if ukraine has gotten there yet but i'm sure there's so many deaths that have not been reported they're going to be finding mass graves for years to come like you like you said they're still looking for mass graves there's still hidden mines in the hills around sarajevo like you don't go hiking on your own around the hills of Sarajevo. There's still mines. There's still unexploded grenades. There's just, that's why it's crazy when I see all this tourism boom all over the world, you know, this revenge vacation thing where everyone wants to travel. Yeah. I'm sure there are plenty of places around the world that were hot spots that people are going to, you're going to start seeing people get blown up because they're like, Oh, my wanderlust. I need to go take yeah. a selfie over here. This is where the war was or I could just imagine people going to former war zones. Of course, an American fell into a volcano trying to get a picture. I, I heard of that. Fall into a volcano. They got him out though, right? Yeah, and his back is all like burn up and stuff. It's oh. He was trying to get his camera, after, well, his phone after. He- yeah, because he took an illegal trail and was and taking a selfie. Oh, that's why we can't have nice things. In 1998, during the Monica Lewinsky scandal, he publicly demanded that Clinton come clean on his relationship with the young woman. Oh, boy. A video of this demand was aired almost daily during Condon's own scandal involving a relationship with Chandra. I hate that glass house thing, don't you? Yeah. 9-11 in 2001. Okay. Oh, so Chandra Levy originally was from his congressional district. Oh, really? Levy's family suspected that he was withholding important information and his reputation suffered because of his pro-family politics, but then he had adultery with a woman that was younger than his daughter. And then in July, two months after Levy vanished, he agreed to have his place be searched. How long did their affair go on? It was like in the months, right? If not years? Yeah. Hours before the search, police said he was spotted throwing a gift box he had received from another woman into a dumpster in a Washington suburb. It was a hot potato. So he also had an affair with a flight attendant. Oh, God. Condit sued writer Dominic Dunn of Vanity Fair for $11 million in 2000 Fair. I loved him. And he claimed that Dunn defamed him by suggesting he ordered Levy's killed in 2001. Dominic Dunn suggested Condit frequented Middle Eastern embassies for sexual activity with prostitutes. And during those times, he made it clear that he wanted someone to get rid of Levy. Did he win? I can't even picture Dominic Dunn saying that. But Dunn paid an undisclosed amount to settle that lawsuit in 2005. Dominic Dunn get all this information. 
And subsequently, Condit sued Dunn again, charging with revive, like reviving that slander on Larry King Live. Lawsuit in 2008 was, was um, dismissed. Well, yeah, because they found her body in the... Oh, my God. They weren't even looking for it. Wow. I, I mean, I have to say, the first lawsuit is justifiable. I mean, that's some pretty heinous shit. Condit moved to Arizona and he operated two Baskin Robbins ice cream stores with his wife and son. When the franchise failed, he was ordered to pay the company $98,000 in a breach of contract. He was reported to be serving as president of the Phoenix Institute of Desert Agriculture, which listed its status as dissolved in the last corporate filing in 2015. And then he later returned to California where he became a registered lobbyist with the J. Blinen Law Firm of Sacramento. We were talking about on one episode how is, there's pressure for wives to leave their husbands when they're in these situations. And it's amazing how, you know, in probably like the 40s and 50s and 60s, even you were expected to stand by your husband and cleave unto your husband. And now it's like, uh, no, you run the other direction. And I would have to say, I agree with the run the other direction. Because if he's going to do it once, he's probably going to do it. Maybe not so much as if he's involved in a very public murder case. Maybe he won't do it again. Maybe he learned his lesson. But some of these other guys, especially the Sanford guy, that one just amazes me. I mean, almost every one of these cases we're doing, these people are passing judgment on other people for their misgivings and then getting caught for their own misgivings. It's just like every story has the same through line in every one we've been doing. Chill, darling. I attended the trial, um, which was uh, an incredible scene. Keith Alexander covered the case from the time of the Washington Post's 13-part expose through Guandique's trial. I don't know where to begin on this. Oh, boy. But, but the whole trial thing mystifies me. They couldn't have thought this was a solid case. Your evidence is extremely weak. And that's what made this case so challenging. They had no DNA. They had no murder weapon. They had no eyewitnesses. They had no earwitnesses. No one heard anything. And they really didn't even know how she was killed. Nearly a decade after DC intern Chandra Levy went missing, the trial for her accused killer has started inside a Washington courtroom. For Levy's mother, Monday was the first time she saw her daughter's accused killer face to face. Defense attorneys claim their client has been made into a scapegoat. When they went to talk to Amar Guadalupe in his cell, he had a magazine photo of Chandra Levy. And that was obviously very odd. He also had a tattoo of a woman who the detective said looked like Chandra Levy. So between the magazine photo and this new tattoo of this woman on his body, they thought it was very damning evidence. Yeah. There were two women who testified in the right. trial who said that Guandique had assaulted them. Did you think that these two women who testified were compelling and believable? I thought these two women who testified were very compelling. It was theatrics in a way, but it was riveting. It was powerful because no one could testify as to what happened to Chandra Levy, but these two women testified as to what happened to them. Mm -hmm. And the jury realized that what these two women went through 
is exactly what Chandra Levy went through, or at least that's what they believed, mm -hmm. that we are now hearing from Chandra Levy. So what that means is that he kills Chandra Levy, Kill and Levy. then still goes back to that same area and attacks, attacks other people, correct. knowing that if I get caught in these attacks, they're going to link me to the murder. I don't believe he did it. I don't believe he did Why it. Why not? I think, because I think the evidence was extremely weak. Officials say Levy's death fits the pattern of other attacks and that Wandike confessed to the killing to prison cellmates. The only person who was called on by the prosecution who actually put Ingmar Wandike at the scene of the crime was his former cellmate, Armando Morales. Armando Morales is a five-time convicted felon. He spent 30 years in prison, been a member of various gangs, and what Armando Morales said was that, I've never done anything like this before. I would never be an informant. I would never cooperate with authorities. I have not, I have not been promised anything by authorities. I'm just here because I'm a changed man. I was in prison, and, and my family came to visit me one Christmas, and I realized that I need to change my ways. I realized that I could also help a family, a family being the Levy family, by telling what happened. He says that Imar Gwendega told him, yeah, man, I killed her, but I did not rape her. He was high, um, he needed some money, he was hiding in the bushes, he saw her jogging, and he pounced on her and knocked her to the ground, and they wrestled, they fought, and he grabbed her fanny back, he ran off. I think he was very believable. He was very believable. He was the prosecution's savior for this case. Wow. For the jurors, in terms of connecting Amar Guandique to Sean Levy's murder, because again, no DNA, no murder weapon, no eyewitnesses, but they do, there is a, a witness who said that he told me this, and that, for the jurors was enough. Still too early to go to Tiffany's. I guess the next best thing is a drink. I will never be the woman with the perfect hair who can wear white and not spill on it. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Let's play a game, all right? On the count of three, name your favorite dinosaur. Don't even think about it, just name it. Ready? One, two, three. Hey, it's me again, and you thought you probably had enough of my voice by now. Just a quick reminder to find us and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Miss Intrigue Pod. Follow us on Pinterest and Flipboard where we collect featured stories from across the internet of royalty, chronicles of interesting events in history, and of course, true crime. Lastly, check out our YouTube channel because everyone has one, right? That features playlists of documentaries and other related segments from our podcast topics. And if you want to hit us up, check out Miss deeds and intrigue podcast.com but we don't have a complaints department just to give you a little heads up the podcaster or authors assumes no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast 
The information contained on this podcast is an as-is basis with no guarantees of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. A reasonable amount of effort was made to deliver precise data. All views expressed by the podcast hosts or guests co-host are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which Carrie, Misdeeds, or Intrigue podcast or Larissa have been, am now, or will be affiliated. The content of this podcast is for personal, informational, and entertainment purposes only and is not to be viewed for commercial use. Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast respects the intellectual property of others. Any audio clips that were not generated by the podcast host or producer was pulled from the public domain, free use sites, and or from YouTube or other authorized sites to gather information. The utmost effort was made to credit the author and or production. If at any time you feel that copyright was infringed, please email Carrie at misdeedsandintriguepodcast.com and immediate action will be taken to remove the audio clips that were present for entertainment purposes only.